Trying something a little different this morning. Instead of sitting up there on the stage, I wanted to be down here so I could see people. Good job being fruitful and multiplying. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Lord, for the next generation. Bless those who are teaching them this morning. All right, so we'll be turning our Bibles to Exodus 25 this morning. And as we head there, I want to remind you that on Christmas Eve, December 24th, it's going to be a wild Friday night. We're going to read the Christmas story, and we're going to worship. And so I want to invite you guys, if you don't know that we have that, it'll be Christmas Eve. There will be one service. It'll be at 6.30, and uh, come ready to celebrate. So in Exodus chapter 25 this morning, I want you to remember that God has been revealing to Moses what he's getting ready to do. Uh, God first revealed himself to Moses through a burning bush, and now he's revealing himself to a burning mountain, uh, through a burning mountain. And then as Moses has gone up this mountain, the group of people that he's traveling with is slowly dwindling until it's just Moses by himself. And I don't know about you guys, but during the holidays— loneliness becomes this thing that people really tend to focus on because it's it's hard. Uh, uh, whether it's the holidays or whether it's losing someone throughout the year, uh, it just becomes way more clear uh, when relationships have either ended or broken. And so because of that, we feel alone. And yet God sent his son Jesus to be God with us. And so here Moses is heading up this mountain and more and more, he's feeling this aloneness until he's completely alone, but he's completely alone with God. Which, I don't know about you, but that's the best place to be whether we realize it or not. Aloneness with God is where he speaks to us the most clearly because there's the least amount of distractions. You guys who just sent your kids to children's church are experiencing this a little bit right now. You're thankful for a little bit of aloneness. Um, but that's the gift, right? That's the sanctuary. That's the place where we come to meet with God and go, okay, God, life's been loud this week. What do you have for me personally? Because I need to hear a word from you because life is not giving me peace, but you are my peace. So what do you have for me? And so Moses has entered into the presence of God. And God's getting ready to reveal the next step in the maturity of the nation of Israel. He says, I'm going to give you a place that I will dwell among you where you can meet with me and hear from my word and, and be undistracted and have unbroken fellowship with me. And so in chapter 25, verse 1, it says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying— Now I want to remind you, Moses had already been up on the mountain for six days in the glory of God. No words. No words for six whole days. So if you feel like you haven't heard from the Lord for six days, you're in good company. Neither has Moses. But on the seventh day, God speaks to Moses, and he says, Speak to the children of Israel that they bring me an offering. <laughs> Thanks for that. The first word. And now uh, I want you to start the service by uh, conducting a offering service, right? 
So if you're the first time you've ever been here, that's why I'm talking about offerings this morning because that's how it always works. If we ever have guests, all of a sudden tithes and offerings comes up. That's just how the word works. But what I want to point out is that offerings were never uh, the leader of the church's idea. It was God's idea. And here I have for you um, just a couple of notes about this. Uh, He says, tell them to bring an offering. The offering wasn't Moses' idea, it was God's. But I want to point out something that's very important to know. God doesn't ask us to offer him things because he needs them. God asks for an offering because he wants us to have the opportunity to be involved with what he's already going to do. Does that make sense? He's not broke. And I don't care how many hankies and sweaty preachers you've heard say, if you don't donate... We're going to have to close the doors. It's all over, said, and done. Although, I have had that thought as a pastor before. (laughs) But the Lord always brings me back to, that's not what it's about. I'm going to provide for my church. I always have. I always will. But in saying that, the Lord still does tell Moses to speak to the children of Israel to tell them to bring an offering. He says, and then from everyone who gives it willingly with his heart, you shall take my offering. So he says, I want you to give an offering. I want the people to give an offering. And then I have a purpose for the offering. So receive the offering. But he says, as long as they offer it with a willing heart. God loves a cheerful giver. And, and if you notice that Jesus in the New Testament, when he's walking amidst the temple... He's standing there, and it says that he watches the people make offerings. But it doesn't say how much. It doesn't say that Jesus noticed how much they gave. It says that he noticed how they gave. He cares about our hearts and all that we do. And so there, in that passage, he, he notices a widow who's giving two or three mites. I can't remember, but it's like pennies. And the reason that he notices her so much is that because he knows how much she has and that she's given out of her poverty. And so as he says, receive their offering, he says, offer, excuse me, receive it as long as they offer it with a willing heart. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, the Corinthian church was being goaded or poked a little bit by Paul because they had promised to make an offering to the Jerusalem church who were experiencing a famine. And he says, I want you to know that you have promised to make this offering. I'm writing a letter to you to make sure you take it before we come to receive it because I don't want you to feel like you're not prepared or be embarrassed. But he had to tell the Corinthian church to fulfill their promise to make an offering, and they were one of the most affluential churches in their day. They had the most, and he had to remind them to give. But there was another church, in contrast, that he never had to ask them to give. And that was the Philippian church. And they were just blessed to be able to be a part of the work that Paul was doing. He never had to tell them to give because out of the abundance that they had received from Christ, they were just excited to be able to give at all. And so it's interesting that everybody has differing gifts. And yet God, he he receives from all of us when we're willing. But he says there, that God doesn't need what we have to give, but he's willing to receive when we are cheerful. And in Malachi, in chapter 3, in verse 8, it says this. 
the prophet writing to the nation of Israel who had lost their focus on what was to be the object of their worship, was, which was God, he says to them, will a man rob God? And yet you have robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? And God says, in tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me. Even this whole nation, you've robbed the nation. He says, therefore, bring all the tithes, which was the first, it was the 10% that came off of the first fruits of their labors, into the storehouse. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, so that there may be food in my house. And try me now in this. There's one place in the Bible where God says, test me. And it's not test me to see if I'm real. He says, test me in this. If, if you give to me out of the abundance that I pro provide for you, if I won't make up for whatever you think you might be giving up. He says there, test me in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. And I personally can testify that every time that God has asked me to do something, to give something, that whatever I've given him, he's outgiven me every time. He always provides back. And that's not a reason to give necessarily. I wouldn't give just because God promises to give you. Uh, that might not be a free will offering. That might be strings attached. And yet, he says, test me in this. And so um, I think that we're kind of foolish not to ask, you know, to, to try him out. And yet the point here is, is that our God, when we give to him, we actually reflect the God that we worship. Because our God is a giving God. And it says there in John chapter 3, verse 16, God so loved the world that he did what? He gave his only begotten son that whosoever shall believe in him will not perish, but instead have everlasting life. So he gives his son the most precious being, the most precious relationship that he has. He gives it up. And then if we'll receive what he gives... He actually gives more. In receiving him, you receive not just him, but you receive eternal life. And so God gives, and so when we reflect the heart of God, he says we bring him an offering. Now, his offering isn't just so that uh, God's pockets can be lined. It's so that there will be a place to worship God. And so in verse 3, Back in our passage, <clears throat> I'll get there. He says, this is the offering which you shall take from them. Gold, silver, bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet thread. Fine linen and goat's hair. Ram skins, dyed red, badger skins, Acacia wood. So, uh, by the way, this isn't God's Christmas l list. Maybe you're recognizing some things you've asked for. Maybe some goat hair, you know, uh, some nice uh, clothes, um, some ram skins. Um, badger skins is interesting. I did a little bit of digging, and then I read some other commentaries. Uh, badger skin isn't what you and I would think if we were going to trap a badger. Uh, a badger, in this case... The literal translation is a porpoise or a manatee. 
And for you World Wildlife Foundation people, uh, that's dolphin and manatee, who, which are in the endangered list, right? Uh, so why would we use badger skin or porpoise, dolphin, or, uh, you know, it sounds almost absurd. But the reality is he's going to use that skin to put on the outside of the tabernacle. Why? Well, they're waterproof. Uh, simply, it's waterproof skin to keep the water out of the worship place where God's presence is experienced on earth. And so it's very practical. But I also want to point out, as he goes on to mention, he says ram skins dyed red, badger skins, acacia wood, oil for the light, which would many times be olive oil, spices for the anointing oil and for the sweet incense, onyx stones, stones to be set in the ephod and in the breastplate. These 12 stones would represent the 12 tribes of Israel on his breastplate when he was before the presence of God on their behalf. And he says, let, me, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. So when God asks for them to make an offering of some items, he doesn't hold back and say, you know, whatever you got. He has specific requests. And these are expensive items, by the way. Uh, acacia wood, though, was actually the trees that would be around them in the Arabian desert. They would be everywhere. So he also asks for items that were readily available. But in 1 Corinthians, in chapter 3, verse 9, That's not 1 Corinthians. There it is. Chapter 3, verse 9. God says, or excuse me, Paul writes, he says, we are God's fellow workers. We're his co-workers. You ever thought about that? Uh, maybe you don't like some of your co-workers. Uh, did you know that if you're in Christ, that you're his co-worker? So maybe you have at least one co-worker you like. He says, we are God's co-laborers. And you are God's field, and you are God's building. According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I've laid the foundation, and another builds on it. But eat, let each one take heed to how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation, and then he goes out to list the materials, with gold, Silver, precious stones, sound familiar, wood, hay, and straw, then each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it. And if you're, it's in your Bibles, uh, the word their day is capitalized. That's not just any day. That's the day of the Lord. And so when the day of the Lord comes, the work that we have built on the solid foundation of Jesus Christ will be proven or it will be burned up. He says, um, the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test each one's labor of what sort of labor it is. Now, if anyone's work, which he has built on it, endures, then guess what? We get rewarded. So if your work was done in precious stones and the best materials that can survive fire, then they're going to survive. And guess what? God provided those materials. He gave you the faith to build with them. And then when they don't burn up, guess what? We get rewarded for really what God did. And we got to be a part of because we're working together with him. But he says, if anyone's work is burned, 
then he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so is through fire. So this judgment is not a judgment of salvation. It's a judgment of the works that you do because of what Jesus Christ has done. And so many of us, whether we realize it or not, we offer up to God whatever's left. But the question is, do you offer what's best or what's left? Do you offer God your best or do you offer the leftovers? And I will confess before you many times, a lot of my works are going to burn up because I offered up things that were less than. That doesn't mean I won't be saved, by the way. That just means I won't be rewarded as well. Now, God will sort all that out, but I don't know about you guys, but I want as many rewards as I can get. Why? Because when we see Jesus and we have these crowns that the New Testament tells us that we'll be rewarded, it's not like I'm going to walk around with my big gold crowns on and go, I did better than you. Those crowns are a privilege because when I see Jesus, guess who I'm going to give those crowns to? Jesus... I'm going to be like, hey, thank you for making this all possible. I want to offer this to you. And, and so the beauty is that God gives us the ability, the choice on how much we want to offer to him in this life. Recognizing that it's a vapor, but also recognizing that no matter what financial status you're in, no matter what walk of life you come from, we all have been given gifts and talents and abilities and time that we can offer to him. We don't actually have to get gold. We don't actually have to offer a special kind of wood or dolphin skin. Praise the Lord for that. We get to take what he places in our hands, and we get the choice whether or not we're going to offer it back to him. And then on heaven's side of things, he rewards us with what we do with what he has given us. And so... Verse 8. It says, Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. So why does God want my offering? Well, verse 8 says, In order that we can build a sanctuary, a place where God can be met with, so that he may dwell among us. So God's dwelling among us is his own choice. And yet he offers us the ability to work with him to make that possible. And so in Matthew chapter 2, verse 11, we see a picture of this. Now, I'm not going to go there, but this passage is in our minds as we prepare to celebrate Christmas. What did the wise men do as they traveled from afar and they traveled across the, the desert of you know, the sea of deserts and the, the places that they traveled through. And they brought to the Savior at the time that he was a young man. By the way, he wasn't there. <laughs> she, he wasn't just born and then they showed up. But they showed up later, later and they offered up gifts. What's interesting is that the gifts that they mention are actually ones we just read about in Exodus 25. Gold, frankincense, incense, and myrrh. And so the, the wise men, uh, the wise guys, if you will, they already had a corner. They understood that this king that was coming was worthy of bringing gifts to. And so they picked up on what Moses is hearing in the Old Testament. But what's really interesting is that these gifts were given to Jesus for what purpose? So that he could dwell among us. 
Do you see that? He says to Moses, have them bring an offering so that I can build a tabernacle so that God can dwell among you. And the wise men, seeing in the stars, the very gospel written in the stars, the heavenly hosts, they see that the, the king that was prophesied about in the Old Testament, they did their, their uh, scientific calculations and they figured out the time and the place. And then when they came, they brought an offering of gold, frankincense, and myrrh so that God could dwell among us. Why? Because God, Jesus Christ, was born into a poor family. How's he going to sustain? How are they going to get diapers? How they, you know, think of the things that we bring to a, uh, a, a think of the things that we bring to a baby uh, shower. We bring, you know, whether it's a backpack or a bag or bottles or pumps or, you know, a, a, you know, a changing table. All those things are so that that baby can dwell with that family. And I heard Tim Hawkins make a joke about it, like, hey, let's take him some gold. He can snuggle up with that. He, you know, he won't have any food, but man, he'll be filthy rich. But the reality is that money, that gold, is currency for him to be able to buy the things that he needs. To travel. They had to right away, they had to leave and go to Egypt to hide from Herod, who was killing babies his age. And so these offerings are that God could dwell among us, and you are told by the Lord to take the first fruits of your labor and give it to the Lord, not so that the church can become bigger, although I'm thankful that we've been able to purchase a place and a space to worship God, but it's so that the church, the ecclesia, the place of God's presence would be in our midst. It's not about a building. It's about the people that are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And as we propagate and we share the gospel and, and the message spreads, God's presence is in our valley. And so we gather together regularly to be equipped for the work of the ministry, to be built up in the faith, to be sharing each other's testimonies, to be worshiping our God in a physical way to point to the heavenly reality. So he says, make a sanctuary so that I may dwell among you. And in John chapter 1, verse 14, it says, God became flesh and he dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. But that word dwelt among us, that word dwell in the New Testament actually means tabernacle. God became flesh and he tabernacled among us. I love this. And so, in verse 9, he goes on to say, According to all I show you, that is, the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnishings, just so you shall make it. And so the word pattern here, uh, one of the rules of Bible study, if you really want to dig into the word, a simple rule is if you see something repeated, dig in. That's God saying it over and over again, so it'll get our attention. Dig into that word. So in this passage, the word, it is pattern. And so I have for you on the screen, according to the pattern, you shall make it. Pay careful attention. So God showed them the pattern of the tabernacle, the blueprints, if you will. And then he shows them the pattern of the tabernacle's furnishings. Here's how to make them. Here's what they're supposed to look like. Here's the materials to use. And what I love about the tabernacle is even the, the big building, 
The thing they would travel through the desert and put it up and then take it down and put it up and take it down. You know where the gold was? It was inside where nobody could see it. If I had a bunch of gold and I was going to build a building out of it, I'd put it on the outside so everybody would see its gleaming presence. But God puts it on the inside. So as we see the tabernacle furnishings and the, the way that it's all designed, what I want you to notice is that God starts where he would meet with man, and then he goes outward. He starts on the inside, and he works out. And any time God does a work of redemption in your life, he starts on the inside, and then he starts going to the outside so that the outside changes. But the other thing I want you to notice is that as we get there, and it'll take a few weeks to get there, the outside of the tabernacle did not look glorious. It was covered in skins of animals. It looked common. It looked like any other Bedouin tent, just like Jesus. He didn't come with a glory, glorious glow. He came and he looked normal like you and I. And Isaiah says that he had no form or comeliness that we should desire him. He didn't look like a bodybuilder. He wasn't golden in his presence. He just looked like a human being. And so most people overlooked him because he was so common looking. I, I don't know about you guys, but if I was living in those days, I'd want neon. I want, I want to see the neon like they got on Colton's. I want to be drawn to his presence because of what he looks like. But that's not how God works. He forms and fashions, and he shows us God's character in the way that, that Jesus conducted himself. And in you and I, God's not going to see, people aren't going to see Jesus in us because of how good we look. At least me, I'll speak for me. God's not going to see, people are not going to see God's presence in me because of how I look. But they are going to see God's presence in me based on my character. It's going to be like gold as he continues to form and fashion me. So that said, he says, make it according to the pattern. So I'm, a little way to study this is to, I looked up on Google what the word pattern means. And then I went to the Strong's Concordance, which you can do online. You don't have to be, have the thick book. Go to BibleHub.com, uh, search out King James Version, Strong's, and then uh, you click on the word pattern and it gives you the definition. Well, on Google, even if I don't look up the Strong's, I look up the word pattern, it says a repeated decorative design. A design that is repeated. Uh, an arrangement or a sequence regularly found in comparable objects. A regular and intelligible form or sequence discernible in certain actions or situations. The second definition. A model or design used as a guide in needlework and other crafts. If you've ever built something or watched one of those DIY videos, there's a pattern. You can buy patterns to build homes or furniture or whatever it is to build bunk beds, you know. Or if you're going to sew something or do needlework, you can buy patterns. They used to have it when I was growing up. You'd go to Walmart. Not all the Walmarts have it anymore. You could buy the material, and then you could buy the pattern, and then you can make something to copy what somebody else has designed. The third example, the third definition, an example for others to follow. So all of these things are a pattern to build after. So why is he using the word pattern? Because... As far as I know, there's never been a tabernacle built on earth. Except what he's showing us here, the word 
pattern in the Strong's, if you click it on Bible Hub, it means structure. By implication, a model, a resemblance. Well, you can't have a resemblance of something unless there's already the something, right? So, what is he saying? Well, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 5 says this. These things in the Old Testament tabernacle serve as a copy. You can't copy something that doesn't exist. They serve as a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things as Moses was warned when he was about to complete the tabernacle. For he said, be careful that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. Why? Because the earthly model, it's a scale model, points to the heavenly reality. The earthly model of the tabernacle points to the heavenly reality that it pointed to. And so, beginning with verse 10, he starts to lay out the implements that are in the temple. He says, They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two and a half cubits shall be its length. A cubit and a half is its width. A cubit and a half would be its height. A cubit is about 18 inches or so. And you shall overlay it with pure gold inside and out you shall overlay it. And you shall make on it a molding of gold all around. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them in its four corners. Two rings shall be on one side and two rings on the other side. And you shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. You shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark that the ark may be carried by these poles. See, they were never supposed to touch the ark. The ark was holy. As a matter of fact, there was a story where they were moving the ark back from the Philistines who had stolen it. And as they were rolling it on a cart, instead of carrying it, like the Bible says, they broke the law and the Levites touched, or maybe it was a priest who touched the ark and he was smoked right there on sight. He died. Because they didn't follow what the law said. So the poles shall be in the rings of the ark, and they shall not be taken from it. You shall put into the ark the testimony which I will give you, and you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. So the ark was essentially a box. It was a memory box, if you will. It was covered in gold, and then inside of it was the testament, the words of God. Then on top of it, you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two and a half cubits shall be its length and a cubit and a half its width. You shall make two cherubim of gold, of hammered work. You shall make them at the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at one end, these are angels, and the other cherub at the other end. You shall make the cherubim at the two ends of it, of one piece, with the mercy seat. So the place where they would meet God. Now the cherubim shall stretch out their wings above, covering the mercy seat with their wings, and they shall face one another. The faces of the cherubim shall be toward the mercy seat. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark <clears throat> you shall put the testimony that I will give you. And there I will meet with you. I will speak with you from above the mercy seat. From between the two cherubim, which are on the ark of the testimony, about everything which I will give you in the commandment to the children of Israel. So what do we have going on here? 
we have where God has chosen to meet with the high priest. And we have this between two cherubim. Why? Well, if you remember early in Genesis, when they had fellowship with God, Adam and Eve, and when Adam and Eve broke the one commandment of God, they were sent out of the garden. And when they were sent out of the garden, it says there that God guarded the tree of life so they couldn't come back to it with what? Cherubim, with fiery swords, so no one could come back into the presence. So as we look at the tabernacle, this is a type or a reminder of what they used to have in fellowship with God. This is the garden, and it's guarded by two cherubim. So the place where they were to meet with God between two cherubim at the mercy seat. Now, you cannot get to this place apart from coming in through the tabernacle. And in the tabernacle was the mercy seat beaten out of gold with two cherubim. But what was below that gold? The ark. And what was contained in it? The law of God. Why can't we be in the presence of God? Because we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've broken his commandments. What's in the ark? His commandments. So God looks from heaven. He, he looks down upon this tabernacle. And he sees through the mercy seat. He sees the word of God. The commandments of God. And on that mercy seat. They would sprinkle the blood of an innocent animal. And then when God looks down, he would no longer see the broken commandments. He would see the atonement for their sin covered by bulls and goats. And now he only sees righteousness. He sees purity. So then the, the high priest who comes in under the blood of the lamb is now able to interact with God and not be killed. Because the wrath of God that he deserves has been taken care of by the blood. And so now he can have fellowship with God in this simple place. So turn with me to Romans chapter 3. Because in Romans chapter 3, in verse 21, it says, The righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Faith in Jesus Christ is righteousness. And, and he, Romans even says that Abraham believed God, and because he believed God, it was accounted to him. It was deposited on his account as righteousness. So the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there's no difference all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God, and all who come through Jesus have been justified freely by his grace, his undeserved favor, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to de demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. 
So that blood on the mercy seat is the propitiation, which is an accounting term that means the payment that was made on our behalf to take away the wrath of God that we deserved. God takes our wrath. His blood is spilled. We are now made righteous. So when God now looks down upon us, before Jesus, no blood, all he can see is the handwritten list of requirements against us because we broke his law. But when we come by faith, under the blood of Jesus, at the mercy seat, and we plead the blood, this blood is alone what makes me righteous in your sight, Lord. He looks down upon us, and he sees Jesus' blood applied to our lives. So now we have fellowship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. And we, we can come boldly into that throne room anytime we want, not because of anything we've done, but because of all he's already done by faith. And so I love this because here we have the meeting place. So in verse 23, he continues on and he talks about the table of showbread. You shall also make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length, a cubit its width, and a cubit and a half its height. Overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold all around. You shall make for it a frame of a headbreadth, handbreadth all around. You shall make gold molding for the frame all around. You shall make for it four rings of gold and put the rings on the four corners that are at its four legs. The rings shall be close to the frame as holders for the poles to bear the table. You shall make the poles of acacia wood, overlay them with gold, that the table may be carried with them. You shall make its dishes, its pans, its pitchers, its bowls for pouring. You shall make them of pure gold. You shall set the showbread on the table before me always. So we have this table of showbread, and if you want more pictures of what these implements may or may not have looked like, um, the templeinstitute.org is a place where you can go where they're building these implements so that when the third temple comes, they'll be able to start sacrifices again. The Jewish people are prepared to start making sacrifices to their God once again on the Temple Mount. But they've been making these items, and the table of showbread is no different. And so in verse 23 through 29, we see the dimensions and how they're supposed to build it and the materials. But then in verse 30, we get to the, the point of it. The table is to hold up this bread of the presence. And the bread would be made by the priests and then placed before the presence of God 12 unleavened loaves. Enough bread for all 12 tribes. And it sits in the presence of God, uh, denoting fellowship with God. Now, the fellowship with God that it denotes and it points to is just as necessary, or I would argue, even more necessary for our daily life than bread itself. Bread sustains physical life. God's presence is our bread to sustain our spiritual life. But this bread was replaced every week. They'd cook some, they'd leave it in God's presence for a week, and then after that week, they'd replace it with fresh bread again. Because God's work is always fresh in our lives. Now, the question is, 
Do you partake of the bread regularly? Or are you living off of stale bread from three years ago? Are you living off of stale bread from a year ago? Are you still living off the stale bread back in 1982 when you went to camp and got baptized and made a profession of faith? Or are you still partaking? I would encourage you, be regular partakers of Jesus. He's the only bread that can sustain you in this life. And guess what? He doesn't even get moldy because they left the bread out for a week. And our bread, what would it do in a week? If we left it out, we didn't put it in something that's sealed to air, it would go bad. But this bread was left out in the temple for an entire week. And the rabbis believed that it was a miracle of God that it did not grow old or mold. And they didn't even have preservatives. And so it was replaced every week. God's work in our lives and in our hearts is fresh every day if we'll partake in it. But it was only for the priests to eat after a week. Now, Leviticus chapter 24 in verse 5 through 9 tells us that it was made with fine flour. There were 12 cakes to represent the 12 tribes. And then guess what they sprinkled it with? Frankincense. Sound familiar? They brought to Jesus gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And so it was a sweet aroma before the throne of God. Verse 31. You shall also make a lampstand of pure gold. And the lampstand shall be of hammered work. Its shaft, its branches, its bowls, its ornamental knobs, and flowers shall be of one piece. Six branches shall come out of its side. Three branches the lampstand out of one side and three branches of the lampstand out of the other side. Six, by the way, if you're into numerology in the Bible, stands for man. Man, not God, but man is the number six. Three bowls shall be made like almond blossoms on one branch with an ornamental knob and a flower. Three bowls made like almond blossoms on the other branch with an ornamental knob and a flower. And so, for the six branches that come out of the one lampstand, on the lampstand itself, four bowls shall be made like almond blossoms, each with its ornamental knob and flower. And there shall be a knob under the first two branches of the same, a knob under the second two branches of the same, and a knob under the third two branches of the same, according to the six branches that extend from the lampstand. Their knobs, their branches shall be of one piece. All of it shall be one hammered piece of pure gold. You shall make seven lamps for it, and they shall arrange its lamps so that they give light in front of it. So I believe this picture up here is actually built incorrectly. Why do I believe that? Because it says that the six are to be done in a way so that they give light to the seventh. I believe that this center candle stand that supplies the oil to the other six is Jesus. Why do I say that? Because in John chapter 15, Jesus said, I am the vine and you are the branches. That's right. Interestingly enough, Jesus' death on the cross when he was dead, after he had said it is finished, and he gave up his life, what did that soldier do? First he said, 
truly, this was the Son of God. Why did he say that? Because the Son of God said, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. He heard the words of forgiveness from the mouth of Jesus, and he said, this isn't just a man. This has to be God. These gracious words that he spoke. When did he speak those gracious words? When his beating was complete. See, it says there that it was to be hammered out of one piece of gold. Jesus was the most pure of gold. And yet when he was beaten, the words that came out of his mouth, hammered, beaten, were words of graciousness and forgiveness. If you want God to be revealed through your life, stop complaining when you get a beating. Because it is when you are beaten, it is when you are persecuted, and then God's character flows through you anyway that Jesus Christ is seen the most clearly. 1 Peter 3.15 says what? Always be re- ready to give a reason for the hope that lies within you with meekness and with fear. And everybody gives that as an example as why we need to be really good apologists of the Word of God. And while I do believe that we need people that can give reasons to the atheist and the agnostic and those who are not believers, that's not what that verse is about at all. Because in the context of 1 Peter chapter 3, it's in the context of Paul saying that, excuse me, Peter saying that when he suffered willingly by the hand of God, that's when people started to ask, why do you have hope? You just got a beating. You're being persecuted. Your comfort's being taken away from you. And then they get the opportunity to say, now that you've noticed the hope that I have despite my circumstances, let me tell you about my Jesus. He's the reason I have hope. Not in the fact that my house is warm, not in the fact that my job's the thing I like, not in the fact that everything's going hunky-dory. People see Jesus in you when you suffer well. And I know that's not an encouraging thing to say on a Sunday morning, but it is the flat-out truth. So, why almond blossoms? Because almonds are the first thing to blossom in the springtime in Israel. And they blossom while it's still what we would call winter. Jesus is the first fruits. He's the first blossom of many blossoms. He's the light of the world. That's why he's a branched candle stand. Revelation chapter 2 depicts Jesus standing in the midst of the churches. And while he's standing in the midst, he says, if you don't continue on, I will take away your candle stand. Because the candle stand is a picture of the church in the New Testament. Birthed out of, and I didn't finish the analogy, when Jesus was on the cross and he said, truly this is the Son of God. And then they pierced his side to make sure he was dead, right? What came forth was birthing fluid, blood and water. And out of his side is birthed the church, the branches. The branches that come out of his side have the Holy Spirit poured through them. This isn't a candle stand, folks. This is a lampstand that the base of is full of the oil of the Holy Spirit. And as it comes up the wick and it pours through the branches, the light of the world is shown. Who did Jesus say the light of the world was? Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. But what else did he say? 
You are the light of the world. Which one's true? Yes. Yes. We, with Jesus, are the light of the world. And the light shines, shines in the dark place, and the world does not comprehend it. It doesn't. But we're supposed to shine nonetheless. And so that's what the lampstand's all about. So, verse 31 through 39, we see this lampstand, and it points to Jesus made out of 75 pounds of gold. Holy cow. Well, that's the wrong words. That'd be like the, you know, the... The golden calf, right? <laughs> but why do they need to have a lampstand inside of the temple, the tabernacle? Because when you walk in, I got so much more I wanted to talk through today, but I got excited about certain points, so here it is. Here's the tabernacle and what it would look like. The, the priest is standing outside. The only way into the temple, by the way, is there would be this big ramp that goes up to this big offering altar outside. And they would offer an animal, a sacrifice. And then after the sacrifice was made, they would wash in this big bronze laver, like a baptism. They'd be washed. And then they'd be allowed to go in. Certain people could go into the holy place. And in the holy place is the table of showbread, and then there's the candle, the, the candle stand, the, the candlestick, the, the whatever I've been calling it. I can't think of it right now. But as they go in, they see the candle stand, and you'll notice that it's much like this room. No windows. Well, they didn't have electric. So they have this big candle stand. But where is that candle stand lighting the way to? The Holy of Holies. The veil. And only the high priest could go past that veil one time a year to make atonement for the entire nation. And he could only enter in by the blood of a sacrifice. But when Jesus Christ was sacrificed for you and I, and now we've been baptized into one church, and we're invited into, we were outside, we understood salvation. Now we're invited into the holy place the place of service, the place where the bread would be laid, the place where the bread would be eaten, the place where the incense is offered up by the, the veil there. We'll get into it next week. The, the incense offering is the prayers of the saints before the presence of the Father, and then the light that lights the way for service into the Holy of Holies, into the presence of Jesus. So there's the presence of service in the Christian life. Many Christians stay in the presence, excuse me, in the place of salvation. But God's called us into the holy place of serving him. It is a privilege. It's a task. But it's a blessed, privileged task. But then he invites us past the place where Martha was standing. Now, why isn't Mary helping me serve? Why isn't she helping cook food? But Jesus said she's got this precious thing that she's devoted herself to right now. The most holy presence of Jesus. The place of ministering at his feet. And that's what the, the Holy of Holies is. Invited in unashamedly. And she was sitting at the feet of Jesus. So the candelabra is so important because it, it's the way that the, the Holy Spirit, through the church of God, lighting up the places that we go, invites people into the presence of the Father. No one can find the way unless we are, in fact, 
the, the light of the world, that God's pouring his Holy Spirit in the oil. And as unless we're on fire, God lights up this oil of the presence of God and we're invited into his presence. And then the whole world, because we're ministering at the feet of Jesus, they see Jesus. Jesus Christ is our mercy seat. His blood is the payment that turns away God's wrath. And by this way, and this way only, we have unhindered access to God anytime, any place, anywhere. But all of this earthly pattern points to the heavenly reality. He's invited us into the Holy of Holies. And, and I love this rock song. I wish I would have told the band about it. But it was by Seventh Day Slumber. I know you guys are big into rock. But I've had it ringing through my head throughout this whole week. I want to go into the holy of holies. Take me in by the blood of the Lamb. I'm going into the holy of holies. Place the coal to my lips. That's a picture of purity. Here I am. And so, Father God, we thank you for all these things they had to build. We thank you for the tabernacle. And this time of year, we thank you that you came and tabernacled among us. A common man, born to a poor family. Offerings being given up so that you could dwell among us. Father God, would you please accept our lives as a willing offering not given begrudgingly but giving willingly lord we offer up to you our very breath in our lungs our bodies our souls our minds our strength so that you may dwell among us in this dark world father i, I it's my prayer and i believe it's many of those who pray in here that you would be visible that you would be real that you would be tangible. May our lives be the very heavenly truth that points to the heavenly reality that God is, in fact, still among us, Emmanuel. Lord, may you be clearly seen through our lives today and this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's rise and worship. <laughs>